Hey, welcome to our series, Problem of God, where we're answering big questions about faith. Is God real? Is Jesus the Son of God? Is the Bible really God's word? We hope you'll join us for each and every one of these discussions as we continue traveling through Acts. Before you log off, don't forget to fill out that connection card. You can do it at branchlife.church and stay through the end of the talk today where I've got some more important information for you. We hope that this series helps answer some of life's big questions. And thanks again for joining us for The Problem of God. time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, there was a planet called Mandalorian. I don't know how he's doing that, literally not me. Now for everyone who's a, a Star Wars fan, you are so thrilled that your pastor just started a sermon that way. For everyone who's not a Star Wars fan, you just facepalmed. Right? Like, what in the world? How is this possible? Now, let me just explain, if you're not a Star Wars fan, what's happening in the series called The Mandalorian. The Mandalorians are like this, this planet full of people, and they have the special kind of armor that they wear. If I'd be a true Star Wars fan, I could be able to tell you, like, the name of the armor, uh, what it's called. It's super awesome and powerful. I heard it out there a couple of times. I'm not going to show you my geekdom by, by explaining it. But, but Mandalore, the, the world, was destroyed, much like Superman's Krypton was destroyed. And it was attacked, and, and uh, the Mandalorians had to be spread all over the known galaxy, this race of warriors. And in the most recent telling of the story, we're learning about Baby Yoda, more appropriately called Grogu, who has been adopted by Mando, the Mandalorian, who's now running around the, the world, the galaxy, pulling all of the Mandalorians back together. Now, if you hear a Mandalorian speak, they will typically tell you, uh, you know, their plan and what they're trying to figure out. And when they have decided, they say a phrase. Here's the phrase that they say every time, and you'll hear it all over this Disney Plus uh, series, uh, this is the way. Correct? Right? Y'all, y'all with me? This is the way. Once they say this is the way, there's no arguing with it. It's what must be done. This is the way. No, don't sacrifice yourself to save me from that roaring monster. This is the way. And they sacrifice themselves, right? So the the Mandalorians uh, have this deep-seated belief uh, that life should be lived by a certain set of rules. The stricter Mandalorians live by the rule that you can never take your helmet off. Now, as they've been spread throughout the galaxy, these Mandalorians have spread around And they've decided that not everybody follows all of the same rules. And so some of them, certain sects of Mandalorians, they take their helmet off. Which is just sacrilege to the strict Mandalorians. And if you take your helmet off, they are now considered no longer followers of, you ready for it? The way. Poor Groku here, he's caught in the middle watching all this fighting happening. And right now as it stands, they're working to try to get 
their planet back, you know, and they have their leader that has the dark saber, and that's all really important. But here's, here's the point that I want to make. As I've been reading through the book of Acts, you know what phrase keeps coming up over and over and over again? The way. The way. And, and as we've been considering now what we're calling the problem of God, and today we're going to be calling, talking about the problem of Jesus, what is happening in the book of Acts is the apostles, after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, after the delivery of the Holy Spirit to all the followers of Christ, the, it, literally in the form of fire, as the church is spreading by the hundreds of thousands all around the known world, they start calling those who follow Jesus followers of the way. Before they had a name for it, before they called it the church, before they even started using phrases like the kingdom of God, they started saying, are you a follower of the way? And, and here's what marked people that followed the way. They looked different than other people. They acted different than other people. They, they talked differently. They, they, not that they were like weird and strangers and awkward and odd, but that there was a, a very distinct pursuit that they had in their lives that was absolutely recognizable to everyone and they would be marked as followers of the way it was as distinct as if followers of Jesus decided that we should never take our helmets off and we would start always wearing our helmets why because that's part of the way it's part of what separates us out and and God calls us out to look different than just everyone else. Here's the problem of Jesus, or the problem of God as we're talking through this series, is that while many people say they believe in God, while many people say they believe in Jesus, they act just like everyone else. There is no distinction. There is no recognizable difference between someone who claims to believe that Jesus rose from the dead and the person next to them that doesn't believe in God at all. Our marriages look the same. Our, our words are the same. Our attitudes are the same. The things that divide us are the same. The things that unite us are the same. But if, if Jesus actually rose from the dead, here's the problem. It should change our lives. There should be a way that marks our steps and our words and our homes and, and our workplaces that will distinctly cause us to be recognized as followers of the way. In the series, The Problem of God, we're answering big questions that skeptics ask. And we're doing that as we go through the book of Acts together because this is simply what happens for the rest of the book of Acts. The apostles start talking to people about Jesus to convince them to abandon their way and follow Jesus' way. And those people ask the same questions that you and I would ask, ask the same questions that skeptics ask. And they're very, very good and important questions. And so you'll find as you read through the book of Acts, the apostles themselves answering the very questions that your neighbors will ask, that you might be asking, that your coworkers or your teammates may ask, and they answer these questions, big ones, like how do we actually know Jesus rose from the dead? Is God real? Is the Bible actually the word of God? What about the problem of suffering? What about religion and division and tradition? What about the supernatural? What about evil? And all of those questions through this series will be answered. So I want to encourage you to be a part of this series, The Problem of God, 
to make it a point to be here each and every Sunday, whether it's Sunday morning or Sunday nights. Use these cards to invite your friends out as we answer these questions. And here's, here's why. You want to join the conversation. You want to lend your voice to this. I know, I, I know for about, you know, the worst 45 minutes of your week, I'm going to talk at you and it doesn't feel like a conversation. But the goal is that this should be a kind of a give and take, a back and forth, where you respond, where you talk, where you take the conversation forward, talk to the people that brought you, talk to your family on the way home, talk together in your small groups throughout the week, talk down in the cafe, and actually play this out. Talk this out. So A, as a Christian, you can have a confidence that you're following the way, and you know how to answer these questions. And for those exploring faith, you can see the answers. And here's the thing about good questions. Truth is not scared of questions. If you have questions about faith, that's awesome. If you have questions about God, that's great. If you have questions about Jesus in the Bible, that's good. I think it's an extremely healthy thing to ask good questions. And allow the truth to defend itself. Because if it's true, it'll stand. If it's not true, it will not. So the question, the big question for today, is the problem of Jesus. And, and so the claim of the apostles is, and you'll see this in a moment, that Jesus who came and he walked this earth, lived a perfect life, died the death we should have died, rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven, that that actually happened and that qualifies Jesus as the Son of God. If Jesus really is alive, if Jesus really is the Son of God, then we've got to deal with that. That's going to be a problem, right? If we don't believe he rose from the dead, and he actually did, there's a problem with that. And so a lot of us uh, start spending our time thinking about, how do I actually know that Jesus rose from the dead? And I think it's super important to understand this fact this morning, that if you believe a man rose from the dead, which is very unusual, by the way, if you actually believe that he was completely dead, completely buried, and then completely alive again, there would have to be some substantial proof of that happening for me to ever believe it, right? But so many people who are followers of Jesus or who know followers of Jesus claim to believe that Jesus rose from the dead is just blind faith. You just kind of hope it happened and, and throw caution to the wind and just roll with it. If you're a believer in Jesus who rose from the dead, you, you probably know, this shouldn't be new news to you, that your faith in the resurrection has deep, concrete evidence behind it. Now today we're going to mention the evidence, but I'm not going to spend a ton of time there. You want to know why? 66% of people believe that Jesus is alive. This recent Gallup poll that surveyed Americans says simply this, 66% of people believe that Jesus is alive. 66 agree that Jesus is alive. 14%, so that jumps up to a, a, what's 66 plus 14? We're jumping into 80, right? 80%, am I doing my math here? 80% either think it could have happened or they think it happened. And only 20% actually disagree that Jesus rose again from the dead. You know what that means? That means two out of, three out of every five people that you talk to will agree with you that Jesus rose from the dead. Most people accept it. A, I, I think because the evidence is actually very, very strong. B, because it's tied into our culture. And C, there's just some people out there who will believe anything, right? And so, so most people actually don't need a dissertation or a debate on whether or not we actually believe Jesus whether or not Jesus actually rose from the dead. What most people need 
is most people need to know what difference it should make. I can say Jesus rose from the dead, and I can be like, yeah, that's a great story. I think it happened. And then go and live the rest of my life with my helmet off. Like, it doesn't matter. But if he did raise from the dead, why does that matter? That's what they start discussing in the book of Acts. If you're new with us, we have a gift for you, one of these Acts journals. If you didn't get one on your way in, please grab one at the Connection Center on your way out. Absolutely free. We're going to encourage you to follow along, whether this is your, your first time with us and you're not able to come back, please still get one. But if you can come back, use the journals, and you can write notes in them. If you have your journals, we're going to jump to page 78. And we're going to use a, a couple of these Acts journals to answer the question, what if Jesus really is alive? What if Jesus really is alive? And so in Acts 13, which is 78, in Acts 13, in verses 23 through 35, we continue the discussion that we talked about last week, if, if God is real. And then we're, briefly, we're going to step into ver, chapter 17, and I, got, I just left the 8 out, chapter 17 and chapter 18 to answer, to make a couple of these points in these ongoing conversations that they have. But if you put your finger in page 78 and, uh, and 80, you, that's a good place to stop, a good place to be, and a good place to write notes if that's where you want to write your notes today. So if Jesus really, what, what if Jesus really is alive? What difference does it make? We'll look in Acts starting in verse 13 and verse 22 and 23. In verse 22 on page 76, it says, and when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king. This is Paul talking about the past. Of whom he testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do my will. Verse 23. Of this man's offspring, so King David, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So he, last week, Big dissertation about God, who he is, how powerful he is, and what he can do. Now he says, God has given us, through David, a Savior who is Jesus. This is the promised Savior. In just a moment, we're going to look at the promise about what a big deal this claim is. If God is real... He has been promising for, since the beginning of the world, a Savior who will take care of the sin problem and the brokenness of this world. Why does God not do anything about evil? Why does God not do anything about suffering? Why does not God not do anything about cancer? Why does God not do anything about death? Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks, but just wait. He did. He did. God has done something about all of those things in the person of Jesus Christ. This was his promise. So now following on through this discussion, Paul's going to continue to talk to the crowd. And he's going to say something like, if Jesus is alive, there would be clear evidence. So he's standing up and he's saying, all right, I'm going to make a claim. God, who promised the Savior, has given us that Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he didn't just walk off the platform. He said, let me, let me prove it to you. Let me show you why that we believe Jesus is alive and why there's clear evidence. If you jump over to verse 30, now onto page 78, you'll see this. I'll, I'll start in 29. And when they had carried out all that was written of, of him, they took him down from the tree. So Jesus was crucified on the tree. 
They laid him in the tomb, and in verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And, right, he just didn't stop there, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised in the past to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus from the dead. It's also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As, as he says this claim that Jesus has rose from the dead, he starts to give Paul evidence to the crowd that we know it's true that Jesus rose from the dead. How do we know it's true? I saw him. I, I saw him. I, I, t- I talked with him on the road to Damascus. He was there. He showed up. I got blinded. He, he came. He talked to me, and I met him, and he, he reprimanded me because I, Paul, was killing Christians, and then I, I'm so 100% sure that I met Jesus who is alive that it absolutely changed my life, and I'm now standing here before you as, are you ready for this? A witness. I am an eyewitness of the resurrected Savior, and when you start going through the gospel accounts, the, the first First-hand accounts of what happened when Jesus died, when he buried, when he rose again from the dead, you will see that there are many, many, many witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And it points us to the evidence that we see in Scripture and other places. And here's three pieces of evidence. Evidence number one, the tomb is empty. There, there is, there is a, a missing body to explain. Somehow Jesus rose from the dead, or somehow this tomb got emptied, and it was a tomb that was guarded by soldiers. It was a tomb that was sealed shut. It was, a, it was uh, eyewitnesses that came and saw the tomb that was empty, talked to angels that were there, has spread the story over and over again. So we have this evidence. We have this missing body. Alone, it's not that convincing, but when you start saying, now we have evidences of eyewitness. The first one is a lady named Mary. Mary, who came to the garden, the tomb, to see Jesus, to take care of his body, uh, now realizes he's gone. She sees the empty tomb, starts crying, thinks somebody stole it, and Jesus appears behind you and says, Mary. And he, she, she immediately recognizes his voice, and she turns around and she sees Jesus alive and well. This is not Mary, a stranger to Jesus. This is someone who has spent years with Jesus Christ. Mary now is in the presence of Jesus, and she is the first eyewitnesses of Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who Jesus physically appeared to over and over and over and over again. These eyewitnesses then, therefore, had a story to tell. They would now go tell other people, I saw Jesus alive. Here's what he said. Here's what he looked like. Here's what happened. Now you have the empty tomb and Jesus actually walking around. Then you have the evidence of the disciples' belief. Not just the 12 disciples but the hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands that believed it in the day. Why would so many people actually believe that someone rose from the dead? Because there was plenty of evidence. There was plenty of proof. There was plenty of people that had seen him. There was plenty of stories to be had. There was plenty of conversation. And if we believe in God and we know God is real, then we know miracles 
could happen. We know he could raise someone from the dead. And it looks like that's exactly what happened because the tomb is empty. And the eyewitnesses, if we were going to put this in a court of law, if we were going to figure out the, the, the case of the missing Jesus, the evidence would point us to, in a court of law, overwhelmingly to the conclusion that he's alive and well. And the disciples would die for it. Every single one would give their life, would go to the grave saying, I believe Jesus rose from the dead and I'm an eyewitness. Not one would recant. Not one would sell out. Not one would change their story or change their mind. They lived their entire lives and died for the, for the resurrected Savior. If Jesus is alive, the evidence would be clear and it seems that the evidence is clear. Here's the encouragement for you, as I stated at the beginning of our talk today. If Jesus is alive, faith is not blind. Your faith is not blind. Your faith is not a crutch. Your faith is not illogical or irreasonable or unscientific. Your faith is not blind. Now, as soon as we say that, people want to point to two passages of Scripture and say, no, 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 the Bible says that faith is blind. And they're going to use Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, it says, faith is the evidence of things not seen. It's the, it's the hope that you have in what you cannot see. And if you just had that line or you just had that phrase, you would say, faith is blind. Faith is believing in something you can't see. However, that's not the only verse. Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews 11 verse 1, all the way through Hebrews 12 verse 1, has this incredible chapter of stories we call it the faith hall of fame where it goes through character after character after character after character who saw God do some incredible act and they give that story as a matter of fact by the time you get to chapter 12 there are 21 physical reasons to have faith in God and it's Abel and it's Moses and it's and it's Jonah and it's Joshua. It's all of these characters that are in the Old Testament that are in the Hall of Fame. And by Hebrews chapter 12 at verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run the race before us, keeping our eyes fixed on who? Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith. It's not that it's blind. It's that we've seen it happen over and over and over again. People have seen it happen over and over again. You weren't there for Moses. You weren't there for Noah. So for you, it's unseen. But it doesn't make the evidence any less true. So your faith is not blind. You just didn't get to witness that part of the story. You're now a witness of your part of the story. And what God is doing today. Which will be faith for others in the future. The other verse people talk about is they talk about doubting Thomas. Remember Thomas, one of the 12 apostles, uh, would, would refuse to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Go to John chapter 20. So you've got to switch over to your Bible. I, I know I'm mean when I make you do this. John chapter 20. Sometimes I'll put the words on the screen for you. Sometimes I'm just too lazy and I want you just to read it from the Bible. In John chapter 20... You start getting the story of Thomas, starting down in verse 20, uh, 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, o automatically I like him, right? Like, he's a twin, I'm a twin, we're all good. Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was now with them when Jesus came. I bet you he thought he was the good twin, right? 
Like, I often think about, like, his, where is his twin brother? He's not one of the 12 apostles. And how many times did he carry that over his, his twin's head? Like, look at me. I'm an apostle. You are not, right? Yeah, he just, anyway. Verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. They came to, they came to Thomas. They said, we've seen him alive after he died. But he said to them, unless I see it, his hand, unless I see in his hands the marks in his nails, place my finger in the marks of his nails, place my hand in his side where he had a spear, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, I like this little fancy act by Jesus, right? Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. He said, peace be with you. How do we know he said that? Well, John was there and he wrote it down, eyewitness. He said, peace be with you. And he said to them, he said to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here in my hands. Put your hand and, and, and place it in my side. And do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord, my God. Right? That's the moment he just... Do you remember when you decided to become a follower of Jesus, right? In that moment, this is all of our heart cry. My Lord, my God, my Savior, my Messiah. You, you, no longer me, but you, right? This is Thomas's moment where he says, my Lord, my God, I now believe. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me, right? Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. And some people will say, all right, now that's proof that faith is blind. No, that's not what Jesus was saying. What Jesus was saying to Thomas is, Thomas, there was plenty of evidence already in plain sight for you to have believed. Thomas, you should have believed Mary. She came over and she talked to you. You should have believed Peter when I rose, when I talk, he's your best friend. He talks to you all the time. You guys go fishing together. And they were telling you, you should have believed him when they said, I came walking out on the water. But you didn't. But I'll, I'll let you see my hands and I'll let you touch my, and, and now you believe. Blessed are those who see the overwhelming evidence and they don't have to actually touch my hand. Which is, all of us. And so Jesus wasn't saying, don't have, he wasn't saying, throw caution and reason to the wind. What he was saying is, I want you to look at the evidence that's right in front of you. You don't need this test. You don't need the actual sight of the nail pair's hands. There is plenty for you to go on to believe that Jesus actually is who he says he is and he rose from the dead. Your faith is not. Now, if Jesus actually rose from the dead, we have a second, a second section. He then perfectly fits every prophecy. If he actually rose from the dead, he perfectly fits every prophecy and every promise in the New Testament. Look at 13, 32, and 33. It says this, we bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. I got a sneeze coming, and I apologize if it happens in the mic. That's one of those moments that's bringing tears to my eyes. I'm holding it in. Don't hold in sneezes. It's bad for your lungs, I guess. 
We bring you good news that God promised to the fathers. In the Old Testament, from Genesis all the way through to the end of the Old Testament, until you get to Matthew, they keep talking about the same thing, and it's the coming Messiah. In Genesis, the world broke, sin entered the world, death by sin, right? Through one man, sin entered the world, Adam. And sin has now been a problem, suffering has been a problem, death has been a problem. And over and over again, they start talking about Jesus. They refer to the coming Messiah. They refer to the coming Savior. There's types of Jesuses all the way through. Jonah in the whale, uh, Moses with the serpent on the, on the stake in the wilderness. All looking forward to Jesus, the Savior will come. He'll be dead for three days. He will rise again. If you turn your gaze on him, you will be saved. They talked about the day of the Lord and the minor and the major prophets. And the, all, the all entire New Testament, Jesus is on every page or the Messiah is on every page. And he's promised over and over again, the Savior of the world is coming. In these Old Testament and New Testament passages, like Psalms, there are these prophecies, and th this is one of them. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Talking about the fact that God, the Father, will send God, the Son, to the earth. And there are over 300 prophecies in the Bible, many of them written thousands of years before Jesus, that he perfectly fulfills all along the way, where he was born, what his name would be, what his lineage would be, and oh, oh, that there would be a star that would announce his birth, on and on and on and on and on and on. And he fulfills all of them, except for one big one. And the one big one was he will raise again from the dead. And when he actually raises again from the dead, you now look at all of these prophecies and go, that's the guy. That's the Messiah. That's the Son of God. And the same guy who fulfilled prophecies, who was promised in the Old Testament, happens to be the guy that shows up on planet Earth, and he does all these miracles. He raises people from the dead. He walks on water. He calms nature. He has power over nature, power over death, heals the blind and the sick, power over disease. He says he has the power to even forgive sin. Miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Now I have to say, if, if Jesus is alive, he's the guy. He's the one they've been talking about. He's the one God promised. And if God is real, and he really wanted you to believe he was going to send his son on this planet, wouldn't he tell us about it for thousands of years before it happened? Wouldn't he make it plainly obvious that this was him by allowing him to do miracles? And wouldn't he fulfill all of those prophecies and all those promises and be declared the Lord of God? And wouldn't he show as many people as possible that Jesus was alive after he died? And that's exactly what God did. So he's, he's got to be it. Now, if this is true, here's what it means for you and I. If Jesus is alive, I am no savior. He is. It is now no longer my job to save the world. I have now dismissed you all of your savior complexes. You can, you can send them away. You are not the Messiah. You are not the savior. You are not the, bl the blessing to mankind that you think you are, right? It is not your responsibility to step in and fix all the problems in your family. It is not your job to go heal the people that have cancer. It is not your responsibility to step, to step across lines and to insert yourself and take the pressure on fixing every problem that you see in politics, in world dynamics, in pandemics. You can't do it. Here's the thing. You can't even save yourself let alone anybody else. 
you and I need the Messiah. In John chapter 4, we have a beautiful story of the woman at the well. The woman at the well had a super uber messed up life. Outcast by her whole town. On boyfriend number five. Married the other four, living with the fifth. Can't even come to the well at the right time. And Jesus steps in to meet this outcast person whose life is in shambles. She's made poor choices. She has horrible things that have happened to her. And she comes to the well and she wants a drink. And Jesus, the rabbi, the esteemed religious leader, takes a drink and hands it to her. Whoa. He's associating with who? You see that man talking to that woman? Scandalous. And she looks at him and she says to Jesus, I know that there will someday be a Messiah. I know that he will come to save the world and to save sinners like me. And while Jesus is handing her the cup of water, Jesus says to this woman at the well, The man who speaks to you now is he. In other words, I am the promised Messiah. I am the Savior of the world. I am the I am. And now you, woman at the well, can be saved. Your broken life can be filled can be redeemed, can be used by God to become an abundant life, no matter how bad it gets. Woman at the well, you've been trying to save yourself with relationship after relationship after relationship after relationship, and none of them worked. Why? Because none of them can save you. Only I can save you. And the woman at the well puts her faith in the Messiah, and her life radically changes, and she runs out to everyone who mocked her, to everyone who made fun of her, to everyone who pushed her aside, and said, I love you anyway. You need to meet the Messiah. He's changed my life. And if he can change my life, married five times, he can change yours. He's the Messiah, not me. So what are you trusting in for your salvation? What are you trusting in to get you through tomorrow, to get you through your diagnosis, to get you through this raising middle school kids, to get you through this project at work? If you're relying on yourself, it ain't going to do it. You need to rely on the Savior, Jesus Christ, first and foremost, to be the Savior of your sins, to save your life into your heart, and then to redeem every moment of every day. Walk on Spirit's wings, not on your strength. That's the whole point of the book of Acts. He sent the Holy Spirit so we could be empowered by him. If Jesus is alive, think about this, then many become one. Many become one. This is a fascinating consequence of the resurrection that I don't think we put much time and effort into and I think we need to think about more often. And in 1722, so if you have your Bibles or your journals, you can jump over there, but I'll just sum it up for you. In 1722, Paul and Barnabas are bouncing from town to town, and we're going to look at many of these conversations in the week ahead. And in in Thessalonica, they get kicked out, and they head over to Ephesus. And in Ephesus, they do the same thing. They stand up in the synagogues. They tell people about Jesus. And what happens in town after town after town after town is not only do the Jewish believers, do the Jewish nation come to Christ and start believing, but so do others 
So do Romans, so do Greeks, so do men, so do women, so do children. And in 1722, we see a good example of this. Many of them, the Jews, therefore believed the message that Jesus is the Savior of the world with not a few, I don't know why they say it this way, with many Greek women, right? So the Jews are coming to Christ. The Greek women are coming to Christ of high standing, right? The, the rich and famous, as well as those dumb men. Yeah, even, even the numbskulls believed. Even the, even the guys trying to kill deer in the woods, they, they, those guys, they believe. Even the ones watching Star Trek, they, they believe, right? Like, like the, the, those, those guys, they'll do whatever the girls do, right? Like, that's always what happens. And so they're just following along again, right? But the point is, many different people, different genders, different cultures, different beliefs became one. The gospel is the great unifier. The gospel bridges every divide. It bridges racial division. It bridges economic division. It bridges geographical boundaries. I have brothers and sisters in Christ who are dear to me who live in South America. I have brothers and sisters in Christ who are dear to me who live in Spain, who live in Australia. What in the world, what business do I possibly have loving on people who are nowhere near Pennsylvania? The only business I have is the business of the gospel. And that bonds us together. I have an example of our money. Do you know what phrase is on every coin minted in the United States of America? There's two of them. One of them, in God we trust right? Pretty cool, right? I don't trust in money. I trust in God. I like that. The second is this, e pluribus unum. I I went so far as to look on the penny, and it's there, on the nickel, and it's there, on the quarter, and it's there. Even on the itty-bitty dime, they squeezed it in. They had to write it between the graphic, the torches in the back. E you You know what this means? Out of many, one. America is known as the melting pot of the nations because people of every nation come here and they become citizens of America. America traditionally has been a unifying nation and what has unified the diverse people of this world has been the, the thought of freedom. Now our nation is a really bad example of good unity. But it's the best we got. And now we live in a day and a culture where we divide over all kinds of things. And we push people aside and we kick them out if they're not the right color, if they vote for the wrong politician, if they don't have the right car, if their kids aren't acting the right way and aren't going to the right school, if they don't actually have the exact same philosophy or or same style that I have, we split and we send them out some other ways. And it's even started to invade the church. I am sick. I am sick and tired of our churches being so stinking segregated and it's 2023. Why why can't we all come together and worship the same great God? There is no reason that the gospel can't be the great unifier and destroy everything that divides. So come on, people. 
you got to set aside your petty differences and raise the gospel. I'm excited in a couple of weeks, a couple of months, I'll get the information to you. We're having a unified prayer service at the Pennsylvania Convention for Christians in the Philadelphia area. And it's being put on by, by uh, a combination of churches from Philly urban and Philly suburban. And we've been invited to be a part of it. You know what I can't wait for? People from different parts of our region, from different races, from different towns, from different counties, from different, from different uh, settings, uh, coming together and doing one thing, praising God. Praying for our nation. Praying for our unity and praying for, why, why, why in the world can we do that? Because Jesus came alive so that many become, could become one. All are welcome. Here's what it means for us. If Jesus is alive, my enemy can become my brother. If Jesus is alive, my enemy, I can't believe they voted that way, can become my brother. If Jesus is alive, the Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus can become family. If Jesus is alive, a persecuting religious zealot named Saul can become a preacher named Paul and can eat dinner together with the people he murdered. If Jesus is alive, the people that have come after me and slandered me can become part of my family. And that should be my call, not to divide, but to unify under the banner of the gospel. John chapter 17, and let me just point this out before we conclude. John chapter 17, Jesus is praying in the garden. If you still have your Bibles open, it's just a, a couple chapters back from John chapter 20. In John chapter 17, he's praying in the garden. He, he, this is the prayer where he's praying, and he ends up sweating uh, tears of blood. This is the last conversation that we have recorded between Jesus and God before he dies on the cross. And as, as Jesus is praying, you know what he spends most of chapter 17 praying over? You and me. He prays over the disciples. He prays over followers of Jesus. In verse 16 he says, they are not of this world just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Have you sent me into the world? Now I send them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified, set apart in the truth. Verse 20, I do not only ask for this, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That's, that's literally Jesus praying for you if you put your faith in Jesus. I, Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, am praying for Josh Park, who's going to believe in, in, in the 1990s in Jesus. I, I, I Jesus, am, am praying for Chloe, who's going to believe in the 2000s and get baptized at Branch Life Church. I I, Jesus, am praying for you. Now put your name in here. And I'm going to pray for you because you're going to believe. And here's my prayer for verse 21. That they may all become, ready for this? One. As I and the Father are one. That they may live in you. That the, and I in you. And they also may be in us. So that, here's why I want to do So that the world may believe that you have sent me. What makes this happen? nothing on this earth makes that happen. Only Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can bring enemies together. And when we come together, it's so radical to be unified in this world that it's going to point directly to something only God can do. So our unity brings people 
to Christ. The church, we've been stinking good at dividing. I think we need to repent. We have to repent and fall on our knees for being divisive for any of those reasons that we had on the board before. And to say to God, God, I'm sorry for the sin of division, and I ask for the fruit of the Spirit of unity, of love, of kindness, of peace. Lastly, as we close, I just want to give you this thought. If Jesus is alive, everything he said is true. If Jesus is alive, that means everything he said is true. We're going to look at this later in the series, but this is the reason that I believe that the Bible is the word of God, because Jesus rose from the dead. And in, in chapter 18, this man named Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila heard him, Apollos, and he was teaching. They took him aside and they explained to him, ready for it, the way. Amen? You gotta have your helmet on, Apollos, right? They started saying, no, 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 you're not teaching right. You're not saying the right thing. You got it all confused. And so let me, let me, let me explain to you the way of God more accurately. And he greatly helped those who were through grace, who had believed, for the power was refuted, the Jew, so he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing scriptures that Christ was Jesus. Here comes this man with good heart, but bad theology. And he comes out and he says, listen, I, 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 I want people to know and follow Jesus, but he started putting on rules and regulations and things that weren't appropriate. And Priscilla and Aquilas came up to him and said, no, 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 Apollos, I want you to lean into Christ. Everything he said is true, not what you say. And so you got to filter everything you say and everything you believe through the truth of Jesus, right? So many of us are following false trails because it's not the way, it's some other way. And we need to make sure that we're following Jesus's way. And if you've ever heard of the 10,000 hour rule, 10,000 hours is kind of the standard timeline. And this is known out there. I've heard it in a couple different places. 10,000 hours is, is the time it takes to become a master. A master at karate. A master at composing music, a master at theology, a master at doctoring, a master, you don't want someone to, to do an operation on your brain that has two hours of experience, right? You want someone that has 10,000 hours of experience. And so the 10,000 hour rule is kind of this known thought, like how much time have you put into the thing that you're trying to master? Here's what we as believers in Jesus Christ need to master. We need to master the way of Jesus. We need to master the words of Jesus. We need to master the, the imitation of Jesus. We need to be more like him. And maybe you're just starting to follow Jesus, and you're like, I don't get it. I don't know how to follow Jesus. You're only on hour one. Don't be too hard on yourself. It's going to take hours and hours and hours and hours. Now listen to this. Listen. Do you know what? Ten hours a day, six days a week. So we'll take one week off for Sabbath. Ten, ten hours a day, six. You know how long that is? Ready for it? Three and a half years. You know how long Jesus was with his disciples? You ready for it? Three and a half years. These apostles walked with Jesus for 10,000 hours. Then he said, you're ready. He died, he rose again from the dead, and he took off. And they were masters at the way. They dedicated their lives. Jesus is worth your life. Jesus is worth dedicating your life to. He's worth dedicating 10,000 hours to. He's worth dedicating your Sunday mornings to or your Sunday nights to. He's worth dedicating your house to. If he is alive, he is worth it. He is true. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Today, do you believe in Jesus? In Matthew chapter 16, it says, if you want to follow Jesus, you need to take up your cross. 
and pursue him. And he who loses his life for my sake will gain it. And if you follow Jesus, you gain the fullness of life. Give him the time and attention he needs. Many of us are not following Jesus on an hourly basis. We throw Jesus a bone every now and then, every couple of months, every couple of years, every couple of weeks, every couple of hours, instead of saying, I'm going to give it to you all. And if you give Jesus your everything, it's going to change it. So do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? 66% of people do. But here's how you know it's made a big difference. Has it changed your life? Has it changed your way? Let's pray. Dear God, Heavenly Father, we know that if Jesus rose from the dead, life is radically different. For those of us that follow Jesus, Lord, our lives should reflect that radical change. Help us, Lord, to, to have lives that follow the ways and the teaching of the living Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray first and foremost that each person here, each person listening online, would have full assurance of their faith and salvation. And later, when Chris comes up and talks about the opportunity to follow Christ and put their faith in Christ, I pray they would do that. But God, I pray for each of us that, that claim to know Jesus rose from the dead, that God, we would be inspired this morning to lay down our lives, to pick up our cross, and to follow you. Wherever that may lead, wherever that may go, help your words to matter in our lives. Help your word to make a difference in our homes. Help you to be our sole pursuit as we go after life and life more abundant through the person and work who is the only one who has come to life after death. The Savior, the Messiah, the prophesied one, the fulfiller of the promises. My Lord, my friend, and in his name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Hey, thanks again for listening through this talk in our Problem of God series, and we hope that the discussion today helped answer some questions that you might have about faith and that you've taken a step further in your spiritual journey. Before you go, make sure to fill out your connection card at branchlife.church. We'd love to know that you joined us through this video session today. If you have any questions about what we covered, that's the place to ask those questions. We hope that you'll join us again next time, and thanks again for being a part of this series.